Um, there was a there was a story uh, reported in in uh, I think kind of early 2019. I think it was. It was in several of the broadsheet uh, newspapers here and, and in the states as well that that DC Comics had decided that after all they wouldn't publish uh, a planned comic series called the Second Coming series. It was a series in which Jesus is sent back to earth by God, his second coming, um, in order to be the sidekick of a superhero called Sun Man, so that Jesus can find out what it really takes to be the true Messiah, having uh, apparently, according to the, the series writer, got it wrong the first time. I guess give DC Comics their due, I, I suppose. They, they responded to a lot of complaints uh, that this series would be more blasphemous than, than beneficial. Uh, and so they gave the, the rights to the second coming <laughs> uh, back to the, the writer who I think was planning to find someone else to, to publish it instead. But, you know, whether it ends up being published or not, let's hope not, um, that's an example, if you like, of what Christ's second coming will not be like. Here, in the final chapter of 2 Peter, we're told what his second coming will be like. Um, And and while this comic book writer um, evidently finds the Bible's promise of Christ's return um, unlikely enough to write a kind of mocking parody of it, here in chapter 3, Peter wants to remind Christians that they can be absolutely confident that God will keep his promise and certainly return. So why does he want them to be reminded about this in particular? Why is it the second coming of Christ that he wants to encourage them uh, about? Well, we've seen, haven't we, in in the letter, that that Peter's big concern is that his readers will have a grown-up faith, a faith that will uh, sustain them, help them to live godly lives for Christ and, and be about his mission in a world where the apostles won't be around anymore and where they'll be under pressure from the threat of false teaching uh, within the ranks of the church itself, teaching that seeks to deny God's truth and lead God's people astray. Hence, he's reminded them in chapter 1 of the complete trustworthiness of the scriptures. And then in chapter 2, he's warned them about the reality and the character and the fate of those who would deny what God has has said. And he's reassured them that God is in control, uh, no matter how it might appear. But now here in chapter 3, Peter is kind of, uh, he, he's partly summarising his teaching in, in chapter 1. You'll see a few parallels between chapter 1 and chapter 3, I think. But the big thing he's doing here in this chapter is addressing the specific area in which these false teachers have been denying the truth of Scripture. Um, and, and that is over the teaching of Christ's second coming. Uh, The scriptures promise that Jesus will return, but it seems that the false teachers are not only denying this truth, but they're actually mocking it. They're they're scoffing uh, at the very idea of it. So so that's what Peter wants to tackle here. And and friends, it's important that he does so, isn't it? Um, Because if Christ is not returning, if he's not coming back, well, why bother to live for him? Why bother to urge people to live godly lives? Um, it, it's evident from, from chapter 2 that these false teachers are, are living for themselves. Their, their immorality is, is evidence of that. But if Christ's promises to, to return in, in judgment are shown to be false, 
as, as these teachers are claiming, well, living to please yourself would really be the obvious thing to do, wouldn't it? Which makes Peter's teaching here not simply helpful for those Christians then, but, but of course for us uh, as Christians now as well. So what we're going to do, I'm going to share with you my attempt at a, a summary sentence of Peter's message here. Um, and, and then we can maybe break that sentence down to take us through the passage. So here's my sort of summary sentence of, of Peter's message in this passage. His message is, remember what God has said because scoffers will come who will deliberately overlook what God has said, but hold on because Christ is coming. So there's my, there's my summary sentence. Let me break that down a bit. Here's the first part. Look, in verses 1 and 2, remember what God has said. Ha- have a look at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So so there's a a parallel with chapter 1, actually, straight away, isn't there? Back in in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I intend always to remind you. And and in verse 13 of chapter 1, he he says it again, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. And and now here in chapter 3, verse 1 as well, he says he's written both of these letters, including this one, to stir up your minds by way of reminder. And and you know, friends, um, it's great, isn't it, when we discover new things in God's word, you know, things we hadn't spotted before or, or realised before. I, I get really excited sometimes when I, I discover a, a fresh truth in a passage of scripture, something I hadn't uh, realised before. But it's important for us not to despise being reminded of the basic truths. Not perhaps that we would necessarily uh, forget them altogether, but that by being reminded of them, that they're being sort of brought to the front of our minds again so that we've got fresh opportunities to to apply them and and apply them into more areas of our lives. And and Peter's desire here is that his his reminders will lead on to a sincere mind or or to pure thinking. I I think the idea is that their, their thinking would not be contaminated by worldly ideas or by false notions of God, but that they'd, they'd understand and apply spiritual truth, true uh, notions about God. That's his desire, do, do, do you see? So exactly what is it then that he wants to remind them of or, or, or bring back to the, to the front of their minds? Well, verse 2, uh, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So there's another parallel with chapter 1, uh, isn't there? Uh, Peter goes to great lengths in chapter 1, doesn't he? To remind them of the reliability of the prophets, that's the, the writers of the Old Testament, and also the reliability of the apostolic authority. They were eyewitnesses, do you remember, of his majesty. They, were, uh, they carried his authority. That's sort of verses 16 to 21 of, of chapter 1. 
And now what he's saying here in in chapter 3 is effectively remember what God has said. Remember the words of the prophets as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote down in the scriptures words not from men but from God. And remember too, verse 2, the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. In other words, the teaching of the, the risen Lord Jesus himself as it came through his apostles. So, so this puts the, uh, the apostles' teaching in the New Testament on the same level as the prophets' teaching that is the Old Testament, doesn't it? In other words, what, what he wants his, his readers to remember, to, to bring to the front of their minds, is the truth of God as it's given in the Bible. Do, do, do you see? And, and friends, um, what about us? Um, we've seen, haven't we, that false teachers must be tackled, not not tolerated, if if God's people are going to live godly lives. But but what he teaches us here, I think, is that the only reliable way to tackle false teaching is to know the truth of what God has said through his apostles and prophets. In other words, to understand our Bibles. That's crucial, isn't it? The Christians are people who treasure God's word. What he said to us through his apostles and, and his prophets that make up our scriptures. Um, just like what we include in our food diet uh, affects our physical health, so what we include in our spiritual diet affects our spiritual health. And, and so we resist error and we grow in godliness by hearing and studying and obeying God's word. So why does Peter want to remind them uh, of all this? Well, well, that's where the second bit of my little summary sentence comes in. Peter says, remember what God has said because, verses 3 and 4, scoffers will come. Uh, have a look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. In other words, Peter wants his readers to remember the true teaching of the apostles and prophets because of the reality of false teaching from those who will scoff at God's truth. And these people will come, verse 3, in the last days. Um, And that phrase, last days, is used quite a lot uh, in the New Testament, but um, it seems to me it's it's often misunderstood by Christians today as as kind of referring to a a particular period of time, maybe just before uh, the return of of Christ. I I sometimes get asked by Christians as they they look at some global event, like this pandemic, for example, Steve, do you think this is a sign of the fact that we're living in the last days, the last times? Um, meaning, you know, that the, the final days le- leading up to, to Christ's return. Well, uh, you know, I, I think the answer to that question is obviously yes, but only because the phrase itself is just a, a, a common New Testament term, actually, to, to refer to the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, what the, the theologians often call the gospel age, the New Testament age. We, we can read about Peter, uh, for example, um, you, doing this in, in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember when he, he quotes the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
And of course that prophecy is not about the days leading up to the second coming, is it? But it's about the the whole gospel age that began on on the day of Pentecost when when God poured out his spirit to equip his people for mission. And and Peter's using it here, look, in in verse 3 as well, to refer to the false teachers of his day, isn't he? Uh, when, he's, when he says that scoffers will come in the last days, he's including these scoffers that he's writing about here, who are scoffing at God's truth and following their own evil desires. Do, do, do you see the point? Peter knows that he is writing in the last days. And, and so his point to his readers then and, and to us now is, is the same. Expect scoffers now. They're a reality now. So we must remember the truth. And and what will these scoffers, these mockers, these false teachers, what will they be saying? Verse 4. Well, the ones in Peter's day, look, are denying the truth of Christ's return. Uh, Have a look at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. Do, do, do you see what they're doing? They're, they're scoffing at the notion of Christ coming back. Where is this, this coming then? You know, and, and, and friends, I think what ought to strike us about this is how quickly people can begin to disbelieve. I, I think this letter was written uh, around about 30 years or so after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it's likely that by that time, many of the founding generation of the church are are passing away. A second generation of believers are now teaching uh, in the church. And already, some of them are mocking his promise to return. They're saying, where is he then? You know, if he's coming back. And, And they're using this disbelief as an excuse for immoral living. And so, friends, maybe it's no wonder then that people today find the notion of a Christ who will return in judgment and glory to be such a ridiculous one. And notice that the scoffers' reasoning for their mocking in verse 4 is that everything just continues as it always has done since the beginning of creation. Nothing changes. The world just keeps spinning, you know, just as it's always done. So what makes you think that Christ is going to return and change all that? Of course, that's, that's a, a sort of similar argument to, to, to the argument that many people use today, isn't it? That they might appeal to the consistency of nature uh, or, or to some scientific theories in order to either dismiss the idea of God altogether or at least the idea of a God who plays an active part in how the world functions that they just assume that the world keeps on running, kind of ad infinitum through a, a series of natural processes. In other words, they, they've got a, like a circular view of history, such that as long as humanity doesn't mess it up you know, with, a, with a nuclear war or a, a climate emergency or, or something, then the world will just keep turning by itself with, with no fixed endpoint, just round and round. But actually, that's not the Bible's view of history, is it? Now, the Bible says that history is not circular, it's, it's linear. World history is heading towards a definite destination, the return of Christ uh, to judge and to rescue. Friends, it reminds us, doesn't it, that we too, I, th- I think, need to be careful, don't we? That, that we don't adopt the, the false view 
that, that seems to be part of the scoffer's worldview here in 2 Peter and that is so common in, in our world today and, and kind of live our lives as though the world just runs itself through, through a series of natural processes. So, so how do we avoid that kind of thinking as, as God's people? Well, here's the third part of my little summary statement. Peter says, remember what God has said, because scoffers will come who will, verses 5 to 7, deliberately overlook what God has said. So the scoffer who, who says everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. So what makes you think he's, he's coming again? To that person, Peter says, look, in verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, the word of God that, that you so easily uh, scoff at is the same word by which the world was created. God spoke his word and it happened. And, and of course, Genesis 1 tells us, doesn't it, how the waters were separated to, to form the sky, they were gathered to form the dry land, and, 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 and the science of exactly how this thing happened is, is one thing, that's a, a legitimate area of inquiry, of course, but Peter's point here is that God did it. He, he stepped into time and space, and he said, let there be, and there was. Uh, verse 6 look, gives a, uh, another example. This time it's the example of the, 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 the flood uh, in Genesis. Have a look at verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So, so is the world just left to, to run by itself, by, by simple nat simply natural processes? Well, no. God stepped into history. And by his word he created, and by that same word he destroyed through flood the ungodly people of Noah's day. Did you see the point? God spoke and it happened. His word is so powerful that it creates and it destroys. Which, friends, makes the next verse, verse 7, all the more powerful, doesn't it? But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you see? Just as God has destroyed the ungodly in the past through the flood by his word, so he will again. God has spoken, it will come to pass. God will act in judgment. His word is sure. And, and of course, those, those false teachers who scoff at the idea of a, of a second coming will be among those who, who feel the force of his judgment. But friends, they will not be the only ones. God will measure all people against the standard of his word. And all those found wanting will face his judgment. The whole of the current universe, Peter says, heavens and earth, are stored up for fire, not flood this time. He said he wouldn't do that, but fire. 
which I think is not necessarily saying that the whole fabric of the universe is, is going to burn, but, but rather that, that the fire imagery there, I, I think, is, is more about God's purifying, cleansing judgment. And, and specifically, verse 4, it's the ungodly who are destined for, for destruction. But it, it's, it's a shuddering thought, isn't it? And friends, as we apply these verses, it, it's crucial that we don't make the same mistake as the false teachers here, and refuse to believe them, isn't it? Did, did, did you notice that in verse 5? That these false teachers have not simply forgotten what God has said, but that they deliberately overlook, that they're willfully disobedient. And, and so it's vital, isn't it, that we don't make the same mistake and, and deliberately overlook what God has said. Because Peter's emphatic here, isn't he? God has spoken by his word and it will happen. So friends, we we mustn't disbelieve it, must we? Either intellectually or functionally. But rather, I'd, I'd suggest, we should let it spur us on in our mission. Because God has also promised, by the same word that promises judgment on the ungodly, to bring salvation to those who turn to him. And so surely this must spur us on to warn people of what is to come, to call people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, to to declare the forgiveness and, and the wonderful future that awaits God's people in the new heavens and the new earth, as you can see in verse 13 if you look ahead a bit. Friends, the the judgment that humanity will face at Christ's second coming should be all the motivation we need to speak of the rescue from that which has already been bought for us through the work of his first coming. Uh, Oswald Smith, who was a pastor of a a great sort of missionary sending church in in, uh, Toronto, the People's Church, he, he said, we talk of a second coming while half the world has never heard of the first. And friends, that includes, doesn't it, much of the population around us here on the island as well. And a knowledge of what is to come should give us impetus to go and tell, shouldn't it? For by the same word that promises judgment, God also promises rescue. But friends, it's, it's the message of these last few verses here, that the last bit of our summary sentence, that, that I want us to have kind of ringing in our ears as, as we leave this morning. Remember what God has said, because scoffers will come who will deliberately overlook what God has said, but, verses 8 to 10, hold on because Christ is coming. So he's already said that these scoffers deliberately overlook the the truth of Christ's return. And now he says to his Christian friends, look, verses uh, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we've seen that that God's word is the guarantee of his return. Peter's already shown us that. But, but still, his, his readers might ask, well, then why hasn't he come yet? 
If God promises it, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, Peter's response to that is effectively to say that that it's because God's timing isn't like ours. No, with the Lord, a a day is is like a thousand years and and a thousand years like a day. In other words, our sense of time and what constitutes a long time or a short time is governed by the fact that, that our lives are they're measured in decades, aren't they? You know, for us, 90 years is a long time. But God's sense of time is governed by the fact that he is an eternal God from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And, and so a thousand years to, to him is just like a day to us. It's, it's, it's over before you know it. And, and these false teachers who have scoffed at the teaching of Christ's return and, and said, verse 4, well, well, where is he then? Well, they should have known this instead of mocking the truth of what God had said. In other words, the fact that Christ has not returned yet mustn't lead us to disbelieve that he will. But rather, it should make us grab hold of why he hasn't come yet. Uh, Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do, Do you see, friends? Peter's demonstrated again and again that Christ will come because he's promised it by his word, the the same word by which he created the world. He said it and it will come to pass. That's what happens when God speaks. And he's not slow to fulfill his promise, verse 9. It's just that what seems a long time to us is just a blink of an eye to him. No, he's patient with us he wants more time for repentance more time for people to turn to him and be rescued from what is coming did you see friends (laughs) friends praise God for his mercy in not coming yet praise God that he's patient but friends coming he is in in glory and in judgment he has spoken it will happen So, friend, can I ask you this morning, are you ready? Have you turned to him in in repentance and in trust? Because when he comes, you will either be his or you will be lost. If we're waiting to see kind of how it pans out, please don't. Because by then it will be too late. We need to make sure today where we stand with Christ, because he's coming again. And, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You won't know it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them, done on it will be exposed. Friend, the Lord calls you to turn away from your rejection of him and turn to him in trust that you may escape the judgment that is coming are you ready for that day 
And, and, and if we're already his, as I guess many of us are this morning, we, we may struggle to, to speak of Christ's second coming to, to our unbelieving friends or, or family. It just seems so foolish to them, doesn't it? But friends, Peter is reminding us here that this is where it's heading. The God who made the universe is going to remake the universe. The God who made people in his image is going to remake people in his image. He will do this for he is God and he promises it. He's the God who says heaven and earth may pass away and they will. But my words will never pass away. And friends, the false teachers here simply used Christ's delay in coming to indulge their sinful desires while scoffing at the idea of his return. But we are called not to do that, but to use Christ's delay in coming to help people to repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus. In other words, not using Christ's delay in order to focus on ourselves, like the, like the false teachers, but to focus on the needs of others to come to Christ too. So friends, I, I pray that these, these verses would, would give us confidence that the Lord will return, for he has promised it, and he always keeps his promises. He's true to his word. And I pray that these verses would also encourage us to make sure that we're ready for that day, but by turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus and the rescue that he's achieved for us. I pray too that these verses would give us um, urgency to use his delay in coming to proclaim to others the rescue from the, uh, by the Christ who is coming back. So let's pray together to that end, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the confidence this passage gives us that, that the Lord Jesus will return just as he's promised. Um, please would this increase our trust in your word. Um, please would it urge us to, to respond to Christ if we haven't done that yet. Please may it spur us on to use Christ's delay in coming, not simply to focus on ourselves but to focus on others uh, as, we, as we offer to them the life-giving rescue of the gospel. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.